Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, Chief Financial Officer of the Emerson Collective, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. All right, Danny, we're back. It's been a little while. I, I blame you entirely. Maybe Billy. Maybe it's been Billy who's been out on the road. I can't really focus until the Stanley Cup playoffs are oh, over. Oh, that's a good point. That's good. And so, so here we are today. Is this is this some kind of like overconfident statement of, of outcome here that we're, we're taping today? De- definitely not. In fact, I think there's a chance that I might not make any real sense today or be all that informative. Well, that goes without saying. Be- well, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, but this is going to be in particular, easy. I'm going to be yeah. in, in particular uh, non-clear uh, because tonight's game five, I'm all in. I'm all caps. You're all caps. All caps. All caps. I've been all caps for a long time. You have been. Yes. You've been, you've been one of the capsiest person people well, I've Well, I mean, I'm not, I don't go back to the 70s, but... Right. Uh, well, you barely go back to the 70s anyway. I know. But I'm, you know, I think, you know, from, the, from when I moved here and then relatively soon after, they sign OV... And they're competitive, and and NHL playoffs is the most exciting thing in the world. And it really is. It's and these unbelievable. These games have been incredible. It's so emotional and stressful, right. and I can't fall asleep for at least an hour after every game, win or lose. Um, it's just it's amazing, and and the fact that I know you've lived in D.C. a long time. I've lived in D.C. a long time. But never, I've lived here more than 20 years, and I've never been here when the city's had a team in the championship game of any no. kind. So the whole way- I moved here just for the Redskins to oh, win did their you? last Super Bowl. Oh, okay. Perhaps so I don't know ever. what that's like, but I see the crowds outside of uh, Capital One Center, mm-hmm. and I'm like- this is amazing. Yeah. The cities. Although DC United was cleaning up in the in the mid '90s when yeah, it first came. I I missed that. I moved oh. here in '97. Oh. So maybe I was here for one of them. But again, yeah. I I I'm not really in uh, a big soccer guy. Oh. Maybe with DC wow. United's new stadium, we'll change. I'll Audi change Field. that. Yeah, they get yeah. the pitch down, so it should be pretty amazing. Yeah, so. awesome. All right, so All that's right. our our caps. Talk. I don't know. I think we may have just increased the listenership to uh, Gov Actually by two, well, three hundred percent by talking I, about the caps. I have a secret aspiration to to be in sports radio, but uh, I have no uh, yeah, basis well, or talent to do it. You found a really great path <laughs> to to your secret aspiration. Yeah, there you go. Through Fed Scoop and Gov Actually, there you go. Um, but maybe because it's been so long, you want to remind people what Gov actually is. <laughs> I was in the intro. I get a lot of people tease me for the intro. We might have to retape it because people will come up to me and say how it actually works. You know, because I guess I. You know, oh no, it's great. It's, You've got to do that. <laughs> so maybe I, I was think, thinking. Ooh. I think if they're teasing you, they're listening. Yeah, that's that's true. And right. and we have not taped in a while, and I've gotten a lot of uh, nudges and pings and hey. I need my wow, gov actually just cast fixed. shade on you in a variety of ways. It's been my whole it? life That's like that. The whole time, right? That's the way I am. Yeah, I, maybe you should take that big kick me sign you have I, on the back. Oh, <laughs> it's been with me a long time. Yeah. Um, including some of the congressional hearings that I've testified Oh, in. my God. Yeah, that's true. But that's because it says there's a little name tag in front of you, and it says kick me on it. it. it yes. So. so we haven't— uh, Administrator punching bag, I think, yes. is what mine said. So. 
Uh, and wait, did you feel like you got your butt kicked in hearings? Uh, my God, the first four hearings I did were about the Las Vegas scandal. You weren't able to, I know, but were, what, what I, I wasn't did. able to do as, and it wasn't a skill thing. I think it was more of a, a circumstance thing. Yes. We both came in after the crisis. Right. We both came in after yes. the leaders had resigned. So the thought is, it was like, oh, well, you weren't there. It wasn't exactly. on your watch. That was my big pivot. That was the big moment. I, but, at hearing, between hearing one and two is to realize, wait a minute, I didn't do this stuff. Yeah. Right? And so I could be just as outraged as they were. But it's still like part of your role there, the drama, the whole setup is that they're, you know, asking you questions. They're putting you on the spot they're holding you accountable right and so for me at the irs the the narrative pivoted very quickly to you're not getting us documents you're you're right. not letting us get to the bottom of this it's quick true. enough and you so you were obstructing justice <laughs> uh definitely not yes uh i still remember some of the stats we'd like to have a really we've gotten you thirty thousand pages of emails and then the next week we've gotten you seventy thousand pages of emails and we've gotten you a hundred and eighty thousand pages. i mean it just kept right. going up because we were shipping the, the emails over as quickly right. as we could so all right but those what, are the good old days though you know, let's talk about the future the future yes yeah, so imagine a future just like a a, a, a random, non-specific uh, future in which there was an opportunity to work on one significant GovActually-type flavored issue, what would that issue be, and uh, how would you want to approach that hypothetical? Well, uh, we, we just had the president and the current administration in the period of time between our last taping and today. Uh, Roughly 100 years. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, issue a set of uh, proposed reforms on civil service reform and how to change the way in which uh, uh, federal workers are recruited and, and, and compensated and, and held accountable. Um, and this topic, civil service reform, is one that I think has bipartisan or nonpartisan support that that the, the the construct by which the civil service reform rules and legislation was written is for a, a much earlier generation of of federal workers and a much earlier version of the federal government than we have today so with your question you know you're, you're teeing up a king for the king for the day question, right? I yes. Mean, instead of going through, although it's an elected democracy, so not, okay. Not really so a president king. for the day? I don't know, like maybe OPM director for several yes. months. All right. So let's pretend that uh, for a moment that mm -hmm. one of us is the OMB director and one of us is the OPM director, and and we're sitting down with a blank sheet of paper to decide what we want, whatever administration we're working for's uh, agenda to be for civil service reform. Now, who do you want to be, OMB or OPM? Well, let's, let's do it a slightly different. Let's just say that we're the, collectively the OPM director and we're putting together a proposal. Co-directors? Sure. Um, Can it's they a, do it's, that? It's a bizarre <laughs> new administration. And, I like that. Yeah, and maybe we'll do it like the Roman army where you're the director one day and then I'm the director the next day. Perfect. Um, but yes, and so we have to come up with a proposal that would bring, you know, uh, to OMB and the president okay. for reforming civil service. All right, so we're throwing ideas at the table. Exactly. Okay. Let me start with, um, which is probably not a reform, 
but but on my list of things that keep me up at night, I'd want us to think about how we recruit differently and get talent into government, how we recruit, you know, you know how like um, in sports, going back to sports, you know, NBA scouts are in high schools. I thought it was about movies. Well, I'm into both. Okay. And, or, you know, baseball scouts. If there's a really hotshot baseball player in a high school that's really, really good, the scouts will already have them on their radar screen. For federal workers, like there are, you know, high school civics and government, AP government classes and programs going on all across the country. And they're, they're public policy grad schools. Yeah, but I'm going deep. I'm saying, like, we should start even earlier in uh, in how the government does outreach to uh, to youth in terms of understanding what opportunities there are in federal service. So like model UN and student government. And all, all that. But I don't know that there's any connectivity yeah. that the well, we we, we kind of broke the the one really good program that was connecting people in you know public policy graduate which, schools which with programs which was the um, the, the uh, what, PMI, PMI PMF we, program. Well, how do we break it? Oh, it used to be a straight shot connection if you got the PMI to a job as a GS9. Now you just get put in this long line of eligible people. I didn't realize that. Oh yeah. So it was so 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 just you know, so for for those that are acronym challenged, you're talking about the presidential management intern program. Yes. Which, if well, you, which became the Presidential Management Fellowship program, program. Which essentially was that if you were a, uh, had, had excellent academic credentials mm -hmm. uh, and, and a well-rounded record coming out of grad school. You took a test. You took a series of tests. Did and you? you did a series yeah, I wasn't of interviews. a PMI. I was a PMI. Okay, show up. You did a, I am. <laughs> you did a series of interviews, and then that made you eligible for immediate hire. And then that then got messed up in a variety of issues. Um, early on in the Obama administration having to do with veterans' preferences and other issues. And so the program went from being an immediate hire program to being an eligible hire program, which then meant you got stuck in a list of right. people. Right. You no longer had fast track. No longer fast yeah. track. So, yeah, so we should fix that for sure. Um, I was making a broader point. But that opens up all. And this is why um, civil service reform so infrequently i mean people begin with you know recruiting because that's where things begin and then they start wading into the politics of recruiting and um you know preference you know you know yeah i was about to ask what is the politics of recruiting oh uh, you mean gets, preference yeah. it gets all yeah. kinds of politics particularly around veterans preference which is an incredibly important and meaningful um uh set of policies great completely but it's one that's gotten very much kind of politicized and very much, you know, it's a big chunk of the recruiting challenge. Yeah. But, okay, but even before you get to the tactics of, of the process of, of, of hiring employees and what preferences they might have and what access, they, and what due, pro, not due process, but what bureaucratic steps they need to go through before they go from, from a graduate student or a member of the private sector into the government. I was raising a, a broader point, which I'm not sure you agree with or not, because you're not jumping I don't, at I it. I don't disagree. I think it's awesome. My problem is we identify a bunch of really amazing high school kids uh, and build their enthusiasm and civic support for 
a role in government, but if we don't have a path for actually hiring them, then that's, all that's we've fair. done is build starting the first a big domino. group of disillusioned people. Like there's there's this whole argument that the federal government, what, what is it, the millennials represent, I'm making up these numbers, and we'll have to go back and test them, but something like north of 25% of the, you know, the workforce right now, and yet they're only 7% of the federal employee workforce. They're yeah. massively underrepresented, yeah. and the reason why is that there is all the entry points have been closed or you know blocked off or limited or restricted for yep. for millennial entry so you're talking about uh, you know going back even like you know gen z or whatever it's I'm called. talking about branding more I'm not saying yeah. like in my mind it's not like I I would have wanted the government to come back to to Danny Werfel in high school in the 1980s and say, Danny, we have, you know, the Department of Commerce, you're on our radar screen for a job one day. That, that's not what I meant. I meant more kind of branding and awareness around the what the government is, what it yeah. does, what the, what the different, that people, I think, don't realize as much as they could at all levels, including starting in high school and beyond, that the government has doctors and lawyers and scientists and accountants and engineers nurses, um, law enforcement. I mean, it's, it's in, it, they, if they think about it, it's intuitive, but explaining and profiling different people that have had amazing careers and had impact, there's an education campaign that will have two things. It sounds do, like the Sammies. Uh, yeah, right. Well, maybe, and that's, we're not hitting that enough audience there. So anyway, if I'm the OPM director or the co-director with you, I'll make that part of my, my first. Sure, I think the recruiting thing, and I remember... Um, uh, John Barry had making government cool again. Right? <laughs> he had that yes, whole, you know, that whole that. argument about that. Yeah, Sorry, I'm laughing because maybe it wasn't right slogan. Maybe, they, but I, I also think we should like, have embraced our geekness. Not, yeah, I yeah. also think though, like if you're going to put a product on the market, you damn well better have a, a means of selling it, right? And I think what I found as GSA minister, GSA, which you know, you, first you had to explain to people why that wasn't TSA, um, uh, and uh, you know, it's not. Because people hadn't heard of GSA. Yeah, the most immediate or exciting. Well, for a while, people had heard of GSA, uh, yeah. not in the best way. Yes. Um, so then, you know, they Googled it, and they got a, a lot of bad articles. So, um, But I found that we actually didn't have any trouble recruiting really smart, talented people to have interest. What we had a lot of trouble was actually hiring them. Right, and they were just—it was a very, very difficult process. I mean, the um, the what's the uh, application system? Uh, you know, the USA Jobs. USA Jobs was you know it was a complicated, um, opaque, uh, unresponsive system that was a great way to you know to lose your application. And if you're someone coming out of college, you got like three months before you graduate. You want to be able to put in an application, actually have some hope you'll hear back yeah. before you walk across the walk across the podium and collect your diploma. The best, you know, uh, uh, smartest, most talented people aren't gonna suffer a six month average wait time with multiple layers of you know opacity yeah. to come in. And so, while I agree with you, there's a big messaging component and building people's enthusiasm and excitement. I think like it's for naught if we would no collectively door. agree that if the if the process doesn't work, if no one's gone in and fixed the wiring and the pipes and the 
and the pathways, you know, all your pro- all your messaging is going to do is really tick people off. All right, so let's jump into that then. So we made my so so you've made your point, and I agree that I can create. It's like a it's like a sequence, or you know, start getting people excited, get them aware. Yeah, that's part of the the chain of events. But then figure out a, a more fluid way to get them into government. And I I actually think you have to go on the on the government side, on the demand side. So you talked about supply, and I think it's really important that that the supply be activated and motivated. Yeah. On the demand side, um, I don't think the federal government has a deep handle on what they need in the way of people each year. Well, now you've jumped to a different topic, but I want to I want to go. I, no, I, I believe, actually, <laughs> that, believe it or not, just like you've talked about going and, and building that enthusiasm on the supply side, I think you have to go and build the intentionality and the discipline on the demand side and when you begin to get those together, then the stuff in the middle, the the processing stuff in the middle, begins to become a little easier to resolve. Well, that's and that's a good connective point to to the PMI thing you mentioned because when when you mentioned the PMI, I thought of this 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 direct hire authority that some mm-hmm. agencies have that are that's legislatively provided for certain positions where and they have a limited number of positions in certain situations where Congress has basically said. In these situations, you should be able to go out to hire. You don't need to compete it. You don't need to go. But but that's the kind of, like, I want to suspend all rules because I have no idea how to manage within the context of the existing rules. It's this kind of... It's like feast or famine? I think it's like cheating in shorthand in a way. Okay. And then it's ripe for abuse, right? And that's what people are looking for. They're looking for the person who goes and hires their, you know, best friend, you know, using that process. Yeah. And like, aha, see, that's why you need to have this Byzantine 84 level process. Yeah. And the answer has got to be somewhere in somewhere the middle. Somewhere in the middle, yeah. And so my favorite example is actually an IRS example. Okay. Which I know you'd love, right? So the IRS hired 7,000 people every year, right? And you're like, well, that's a lot of people. And it's like, no, it's really only about 5 or 6% of its entire workforce, which is not a bad turnover rate. And the reason why it was kind of high was because of the seasonality of right, it. Right. You bring in a lot of people. Well, there are 400,000 people that the United States government is funding to go through secondary education right now through the GI Bill, right? You want to talk about veterans hiring, mm-hmm. right? Here are veterans. They're investing in their career. They're investing in their education. And there's 7,000 openings every year. Why are we not explaining to those 400,000 what the specific curriculum you need, what the specific grade point average, if you do this curriculum, get this grade point average, at the end of your four years or two years of education, you will get one of those 7,000 jobs. 7,000 direct hire jobs? You could directly vector people from getting their education in accounting, IT management, all the different things that the IRS did to those openings. Yeah, no, absolutely. And instead of struggling every year, like, where are we going to get these 7,000? You know where they are. In fact, you've got next year's 7,000 and next year's 7,000. Plus, if they're in the GI program, you feel, you know, you feel a little bit better that it's not just someone's best friend or nephew. Because even if it, you know, that's the thing. But they are in the GI program. But here's your comment about, like, this establishing for people the understanding of what the roles are in government combined with then paying for the necessary talent, the necessary skills to be developed, having clear standards, and boom, generating the outcome of the job. And it would just, you know, 
there would be some die off at, you know, 10,000 people would sign up for it in year one. And by year four, they'd be down to, you know, 7,000 yeah. or something. I and, do like the idea to build off that of us going back to your demand management and understanding what do we need? What are the high, pro- like having a better understanding of what are the positions we need that we have the most critical skill gaps in? Can we design uh, more streamlined paths for people to come in depending on the different circumstances. Like for example, if you if you're in the GI program, maybe that tells us that there can be a more a quicker higher process versus someone that's not. Um, if you are, you know, in some type of uh, other other related program, training program, educational program. There is a direct higher authority for what are called RPCVs returning Peace Corps volunteers, yeah, RPCVs. And I said, just send a bus out to JFK Airport. And when they get off the planes yeah. from wherever they were serving, you know, serving the world and serving America, put them in the bus and drive them to GSA. Yeah. And I loved hiring people straight off the military transport back from their service um, uh, uh, in the military. And I loved hiring RPCVs. You put them together and you know the the amount of energy, enthusiasm, creativity that people with those experiences have. What I loved about the RPCV is like every day they came to an office and there was clean running water. They're like, "This is the best day ever." Yeah, yeah. So, so, <laughs> it's only going to go up. Right? Yeah, it's only, right. And it's that <laughs> the level. cafeteria food's wonderful. Right. And I think I think the fact is that we there are these authorities, there are these structures, there are these incredible people that we've made massive investments in, and we're not linking the demand yeah. to those people. Plus, think about everyone who's in a, ma- in a master's program in public policy or public administration right now. Yeah. You know, again, it goes back to, if, if I feel better about the hiring if, if they're qualified. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like I'm thinking about the PMI program on steroids. It's like, why not have a, a giant pool? Like if you're if you're getting your master's in public policy from an accredited school, then why not put you in a streamlined because you have a minimum it, qualification? The big issue was you had you had this issue, this concern that um, these folks were cutting ahead of the line uh, in front of veterans preference. And what was driving me crazy was this perception that one was detracting from the other rather than having a both hand. And the simple fact is, you know this, like the, the government, when it does its budgeting for hiring, you know, the big fight that OMB examiners are always doing is trying to say, yes, but are you actually going to, do I only fund 80% of the FTE or 60% of the FTE, right? Yeah. You're constantly trying to figure out what is their actual hiring because one of the things that they always leave money on the table with is it's in the personal services They can't hire fast budget. enough. They yeah. can't hire fast enough. And that's yeah. the biggest complaint is that we can't hire fast enough. Well, what if, you know, it was if they were spending less time beating their head against a opaque, transparent, non-responsive hiring system and more time like really modeling what their demands and needs were based on the direction that the program was headed. Fine. Okay, but so before we go to break, the practical suggestion we're having for hiring is kind of these qualified pools yes. of people yes. and defining them. Defining so it doesn't, so, so it's kind of feels a little bit more safe from nepotism or, 
and, and getting those people on fast tracks. That's the whole point of the civil service program to begin with, which yeah. we can maybe, I don't know, we'll do well, another. Well, then after the break, we'll I think we should move further down the cycle. Now I, they're hired. Yeah. How do we pay them? I agree, I agree. I do want to talk about pay. And at some point, we, and should, fi- do, and we should do a show on the history of the civil service system. Oh, because that I think it's so exciting. I think it's deeply. I'm going to skip the Caps game tonight. No, it, it, it involves Teddy Roosevelt. So anything <laughs> well, involves yes. Teddy Roosevelt. You know Isn't the called. OPM building called the Roosevelt building? And people are like, why is it called the Roosevelt building? And you would yeah. think that Teddy Roosevelt, old Rough Rider, the last thing he'd want is the, what theoretically is the monument to the most bureaucratic process in government. But right. that yeah. wasn't. You know. All right, another show. Okay, another All show. All right, let's come back after the break and talk about the Great. other parts of uh, government workers. Go Caps. Gov Actually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop, as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. Gov Actually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. All right, we're back, uh, and we're going to move on from hiring. We've agreed we now know how to hire the the entire federal workforce better. Perfect. We got it down. Yeah, it's solved. So now we got to pay workers smarter. Yeah, well, we got to also, we got to create the right incentives, right? Yeah. So it's got to be pay and and performance evaluation, but, right? But first, I want to say there's, in my mind, a uh, an ongoing talking point about government pay mm-hmm. that I feel like is easy to demystify. Um, and tell me if you agree with... Uh, with this point. I think it's relatively easy to, to demystify. I think it's the wrong question to say, do government workers make more money than their private sector counterparts and vice versa, which is, which is how a lot of people frame the issue. I think what, what study after study has shown, according to my understanding, is that there are certain positions in government yeah. where the government workers on average make more than their private sector counterparts, and there are certain positions in government where, where, we make, where the government makes less. Mm-hmm. And so, so in order to kind of calibrate this, if that's your aim is to create more parity, which in particular to me, I can make a public policy case for both. I could say that if we are benchmark paying people higher than they're making in the private sector, we can protect taxpayer resources more effectively by creating some parity between that commercial benchmark and the government. But if we're paying less, and in particular, if we're paying less on a position that's a really highly mission-critical, important position, then we might want to invest and raise salaries to make sure that we're getting the most talented people and are competitive in bringing those talented people into government. So it's not, it's not it's too simple to just say one or the other. I, I agree. And I think that actually that is one of the um, – that's one of the uh, – that's one of the bits of quicksand that people who are dealing with some kind of civil service reform sometimes step into, turning the conversation around to compensation. Yeah. That quickly gets politicized. It gets quickly turned into this zero-sum game. And I, I would al- almost rather talk about compensation structures and performance evaluation structures with the idea being then on a job-by-job basis, you are beginning to do better and, and more thoughtful analysis about how do you pay people. But the rigors of the 15-grade, 10-step system combined with a performance appraisal system that um, seems to be designed to really focus on uh, the occasional uh, non-performing person, using it as a way to document the non-performer, 
um, really sets up this uh, incentive for frustration and mediocrity in many cases. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But before we jump there, okay. just tactically, yes. one of our recommendations is to um, uh, determine based on the portfolio of job positions, potentially where we are underpaying against the private sector and therefore not bringing the right talent in into very mission critical positions, which would be a priority. Yeah, um, and I just think it's interesting. Like, so in the financial, like a doctor, but or if you look at the financial yeah. services agencies, remember um, what was the name of the the bill? It gave everyone in financial services agencies, the independent ones, a twenty percent raise. Everyone. Yeah. So you had someone who was like a budget analyst at the Treasury Department, who was getting paid twenty percent less than the budget analyst in the office of the Comptroller of the Currency. Yeah. And the argument being, well, the office of the Comptroller of the Currency had to compete. With people from, you know, had to compete with salaries on Wall Street. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the budget analyst was not that, you know. Yeah, that makes sense. And so we had this massive, like, hoovering of the best budget analysts out of all our different, you know, because once they learned that the person they were talking to on the other side of the phone was making 20% more of them for just showing up at a different building every day. Yeah. And so that's the the issue. Like, if you're really going to look at this, you know, you know, making sure that the position has like pay comparability within a particular marketplace, you have to understand what the marketplace is. Yeah, yeah, and no. It's yeah. entirely possible that budget analysts, to the extent that they exist up in, you know, um, the financial district in New York, make 20% more than a budget analyst, you know, in, in the Treasury Department. Yeah, no, that, that makes but, no sense. But, you know, it's yeah. just a different industry. It's a different, you know, yeah. So I, I, I think that that's in prior attempts to try to address this has resulted in these kind of simplistic across the board, everyone gets 20% kind of thing. Yeah. And, and, but, and, but that sometimes can, you picked an example where it has this weird kind of distribution. I mean, going back to an IR, the IRS example, I think after the 97 Restructuring Reform Act, after when the IRS had their crisis in the 1990s, they did get uh, direct pay authority. They could, uh, or direct hire authority, could pay people higher uh, wages. They used that authority to bring in some really talented people into the information technology and modernization space, and they were able to retain them because they Mm -hmm. could pay them more. And I think there's a really interesting, cool story about how the IRS modernized its systems. It's not perfect. But it, it 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 it's a really good story. They kept pace, um, and and the IT and the IRS has has a, has a very uh, strong uh, IT backbone uh, because of the way they were able to hire IT expertise into the into the organization. So again, I mean, as a taxpayer, I am very comfortable paying people what they're worth to do jobs that are of a skill set where the mar- the marketplace, the free market, would hire them for a higher salary. I get there are limits. Like it's, it's, it's like, you know, if you told me there was a, a, a super talented IT guy who was making $6.5 million at some Silicon Valley company, like Google or otherwise, and he said, and now they're coming to the government and we've, we're offering them $6.5 million, you'd be like, no, 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 no. That's taking it, it mm-hmm. too far. But I think there's ways in which we can... Um, find a better equilibrium in terms of 
of giving them a, a more competitive salary than we do today to draw them into. I still want to call on their patriotism. I still understand that public service has elements of sacrifice associated, including the fact that you're not going to get dollar for dollar for certain positions, what you can get in the, in the private sector. But I think we can close that gap. But then I want to make sure that um, if that is an opportunity that people could qualify for those higher paying positions, then we're actually getting the qualified competitive candidate to fill that position and not just, you know, creating a vector for raising the salaries of that's yeah. And so that's why Unless the, it's unless it's super deserved, but yeah. That's why the performance assessment and appraisal and accountability system has to be enhanced too. All right, tell me why it's broken. Well I think part of the problem is like you have this five grade system, if you remember, right? Um, it starts at outstanding well, every agency is different. It's like exceed with expectations. No, so what's very interesting is that outstanding is actually required by law. Okay. That the highest level has to be outstanding by law. Uh, meets expectations is another one I think is ex established by law. So it's uh, outstanding, exceeds, meets. Uh, uh, there's, what's number two? Oh, needs improvement. Needs improvement, yeah. And does not meet expectations. Or I think it's called unsatisfactory. Or unsatisfactory. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and you don't I like this system? Well, no, I don't like it at all because I think everyone at some level in some way needs improvement. But if you gave someone a two and needs improvement, oh, gosh. oh my God, it'd be a lawsuit. You would, you would immediately end up at the MSPB, right? And so what you've done is created this structure where all you can do is tell people that they're outstanding or exceeds expectations. We kind of drop the rating down to meets expectations. Like this always happens. Like people come in like these too many fives, right? Everyone can't be outstanding. That happens all the time. And then you start this pressure to try to move it towards meets expectations. Everyone gets bummed out. And then as people... Because it's weird to go down in performance yeah, just no, because they're re you're recalibrating. Exactly. And then... And then, like, what happens is as the, the political leadership that's leading this change moves towards, like, the end of their term, they start giving everyone a goodbye kiss in the form of an outstanding again. So what happens is and there are a couple of examples, the grades cliffing to a three and then graduating back up to a five when the person leaves and then cliffing back to a three. And everyone's riding this roller coaster of cynicism. Yeah. Yeah. And, and All right, so what's the fix? This is a real tough one. Well, I, I actually think the other part of the problem is then the bonus system. The bonus system, which then, you know, says, well, you can give up to, what is it, 10% of a salary in the form of a bonus, at least at the SES level. And then it's got to be tied to the performance appraisal, right? So everyone wants the five so that they qualify so for the, the bonus. bonus. Yep. Um, the bonus is entirely retrospective. It's entirely looking backwards, right? So you can say, lie about all the statistics about the patients you're serving in a hospital in order to hit that number, get your bonus, and when they find out later on that those numbers weren't exactly right, there's no means of clawing it back. There's no structure. And what we've done is simply use the natural tendency of people to focus on a goal they've been given and doing everything in their power to attain it, rather than saying, look, the goal is going to be patient outcomes. Now, patient outcomes don't happen in a year. They happen in three or four or five years. So instead of maybe having a compensation system 
that's creating bonuses and creating these assessments based on theoretical performance in a given year, there should be something that's more along the lines of a discussion of, you know, people's actual quality in doing the work. Maybe there should be more 360s. Maybe there should be more, um, you know, bringing in patient, you know, a, a customer assessment into the analysis of performance. Mm-hmm. What about teams? Do you want to, do you think you can evaluate a, a, a team and grade the team in a way that flows through, or is that too difficult? I think I think all of these things should be on the table. The simple fact is the structure is is locked down in law and statute down to what words you can use that you can't even experiment with it. And then on the comp side, you know, I think the better thing would be to just, you know, what I want to do is give all my SESers a 5% uh, raise and say there's no more bonuses. And now we're going to just continually assess your performance and determine whether you're going to stay in the SES, stay you're going to, whether you're going to stay in this job or not, based on your your long-term performance. What I'd like to be able to have done... Do you ever get salary growth from there or no? Well, you get the basic Kohler growth. Okay. Right? But it's not this winner-take-all. Like, I get 10% a year and you only get 1% a year. And people will say, well, the importance is differentiation. I'm like, why? What's the importance of differentiation? What, what is well, the only adjustment, I, I can see that world, but I would want the higher performing SESers to have the opportunity to get a raise in their base pay each year. So here's where I think actually Versus what, the, what we the, could consider yeah. is the way they do it in the private sector, more than base pay, is often equity compensation or long-term compensation. Yeah. Why not have the ability to actually contribute at a higher level to people's TSP? Want to have the ability to maybe put something into a 529 plan? I can't tell you how many really skilled, competent federal employees at the senior levels left because they said, "Look, I got a kid who's going to college, yep. and I can't afford sixty thousand dollars a year tuition at, at a even at an SES, you know, yeah. at a top SES level, knowing that they could go to a consulting firm." And well, maybe- that's the difference, and that's where I think the, the compensation. So, like. An SES salary, let's say someone's making $165,000 a year SES salary, and then, you know, it, it, to the extent that the messaging is that they're crying poor, that is right. that is That's, not going to resonate as it not, should. It's not sympathetic. Not resonate. Yeah, it's not a sympathetic point. But if the point is is that I have a I have a I have a master's degree, a PhD, a, a doctorate of some kind, whatever it is, and I'm in the government making 165,000, but there's jobs in the private sector because of my skill and credentials where I can be making double that. Now suddenly I can, now with the with the sixty thousand dollar year college because if you make one hundred and sixty thousand dollars, you're probably not eligible for any student exactly. aid. Exactly. So you're you're going to end up in a position where you're not eligible for student aid. But you're not quite, you know, in order to get 60000 free and clear to pay that tuition without lots of loans, you, you have to net something like 100, 120000 That's yeah. like most of your salary going right yes. to that. And again, the point of this conversation is not to say that SESers are crying poor in any way, shape, or form. It's no, just saying they're, that they're, they have options. And if we're not smart about it, then they will, because of their credentials and their marketability in the in the broader market, they will leave, and um, and in some cases that's not good for and the government. So that's why the, I would argue that the comp should be tied to some more long term thing rather than a direct salary. Put it into five twenty nines, put it into TSPs, and maybe even make it clawbackable. So like if it turns out that 
all the statistics related to patient outcomes were wrong or or not true yeah that it could be taken back yeah, but it but it again the generosity of it can be tied to performance absolutely should be tied to performance it should be tied to performance and skills and and marketability yeah but one of the challenges with your kind of outcome like I, I i love the idea of health outcomes versus kind of more process issues but but outcomes you, you have an influence in, in outcomes but there are all these exigencies out there that are also going to influence it as well so and that's always the tension right yeah but, but in in your business where there's compensation based on outcomes which is performance i mean you don't write the rfps you don't make the awards there are lots of exigencies in environmental and exogenous factors that keep fair you enough from succeeding fair enough. That but i'm just thinking some the of point. the some of the government no one, no one gets to fully control the environment in which they're theoretically succeeding or not succeeding and the point is like if you can't find ways to succeed in the environment that you know that you're that you're handed, then, you know, maybe this year you just don't get extra, right? Because that's the way, that's the way it works outside too. What we've done is created this mechanism where everyone expects, regardless you know, we of whether you're having a good year We're taking the bonus yeah. pool and we're dividing it across the people and giving everyone 5% or, or worse. Yeah. There was, I mean, I, I know you've known of places where people are like, well, you got it last year, so it's your turn this year. It's interesting because uh, when I was at the IRS, I had this really, really tough decision to make. And all these years later, I still think about that decision. And it was the, um, we were, we were in a, the sequester had triggered in March of 2013. And I was at OMB at the time. Uh, I think I actually signed out the policy of sequester or supported the, I think I signed it out that said, um, it's a, during a sequester, we're not going to issue bonuses because, mm-hmm. you know, you know, you got to cut something, except if the bonuses were required by law or by collective bargaining agreement. But if you had discretion, you should you shouldn't uh, issue them. And then and then a couple of months later, after signing that out, I met the IRS and and we hadn't issued our bonuses yet. And we're under sequester. And the question was like, OK, Danny, are you going to you, you going to live by the memo that you originally signed out? And. You know, my sense was like the government, we're not having a good year. We're under sequester. The IRS was under all this scrutiny and, and, and deemed by uh, Inspector General and others to have underperformed in a very significant way that led to my getting there, although that wasn't the whole organization. And I had this really tough decision on my hand in terms of whether to move forward uh, with, with the bonuses or not. And to this day, I don't know. I, it was one of these things where there's no exact right answer. Um, but as you're talking, I'm thinking like those were some of the things that were going through my mind. Like, hey, we're having a bad year. Sometimes when you're having a bad, and but that's not everyone's fault that we're having a bad right. year. But but the circumstances are right now dictating that this is a year that that there's going to have to be belt tightening for a variety of different reasons. That did not go well. No, uh, no in I, terms of the feedback that well, I got from in, the workforce. In my view on that was, and I, I lost a lot of sleep over. I that. didn't want to be in a position where. I had this like bonus pool and I was trying to allocate it across people for whom we didn't have actual and meaningful performance data for which, you know, we had this ridiculous five, you know, level rating system and I had prior years of everyone getting fives, you know, it was what I'd rather have said is like, let's stop focusing on this additional amount of money that's based on some retrospective thing. And then let's put our eyes through the windshield and say, where the hell are we trying to get to? Yeah. 
I, I, I hear you. At, 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 at that critical moment, though, where you're implementing one of these policies and it does uh, decrease the expected take-home pay mm-hmm. of yeah, that's tens what, of thousands of people, yeah. it, there, there are a lot of tensions Actually, involved Actually, so it turns out in, in human psychology, people put a higher value on something they believe they already have than something they think they're going to get. Right. Yeah. So if you're actually talking about the potential of reducing someone's salary, that gets them a lot more nervous than yes. even about the potential yeah. of adding to it. Yeah. So my view is like you bake it into people's salary. The assumption is like here's your, here's your, you know, here's your salary success factor, and either you, you, you get it if you if you do all your things, you get it. If you don't, then you get nicked. Rather yeah. than added to. Yeah, I mean, and that ultimately, and I said, look, so I, I mentioned I've been, I was in the government for 16, 17 years, roughly. I faced a lot of tough, tough decisions, especially as I got into leadership positions, and and this decision was was one of the toughest, and it's one that I still think about. But but you're pointing out the right tension that I faced, which was for the for the workforce, it felt like a pay cut. Yeah, absolutely. Because they, they had budgeted for it. Right. And and even any, though it and was taking called that five a bonus. down to yeah. a four or even a three, that was viewed as a as a reduction in their in their self worth and self esteem. I yeah. get it. Like I felt like I was always at least trying to perform at a five level. Yeah. And so now someone says I'm a four or three or God forbid a needs improvement. Right mm. now, I'm not having a meaningful discussion about how I can actually get better at my work. Yeah, I'm having a retrospective discussion about whether this was brought in at eighty percent rather than seventy five percent. It was just it's just dumb. But you want to change it, and you're, you're hamstrung by law policy. And I'm not saying that any of these ideas I have actually are right or would work. Um, and they certainly wouldn't be right or work across the entirety of the federal government. Two million people, dozens of agencies with, with thousands of different you know types of jobs. The problem is we have a structure that's created a single mechanism for compensation and evaluation across that vastly diverse environment. And what I would like to do as your co-director is say, yes. you know what, there has to be way more room for experiment. Yeah. And and I looked at the possibility of doing a pay for performance experiment. Just the process of seeking approval was 18 <laughs> months long, and that was if everything was you know, perfect. As, yeah. as, as, as everyone answered their inbox the, me, the minute the, the email yeah. came into it. Yeah. 18 months to experiment. And like, what is, what is the fear of turning like an organization? I said, look, if I can get everyone to agree to participate like within this context, and I'm not going to cost the organization any more money, and I don't know, people will, you know, sign a, 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 a willing to um, uh, mediation rather than suit if it goes badly, you know, what do you care? And the answer is we don't, but we got this 18-month pilot demonstration project, and, and I kept getting talked out of it, and I wish I had launched This was at GSA or Treasury? Started at Treasury, okay. and I got talked out of it, and then I went to Treasury but GSA all fired up about it, and I get talked out of it again. Like, it's just going to take you too long. Well, when you become co-director of OPM, you should take the fight on again. Right. I think, actually, <laughs> instead of agencies coming to OPM, OPM should go to agencies. Yeah. And they should have some designs and say, here are the five ideas we have. Which one do you want to try? And OPM should be really open to Absolutely. testing new but approaches. They were, 
deeply resistant. They wouldn't even open the door. It's like, well, it's 18 months if everyone answers all the emails. And I'm like, yeah, but you're the email answerer. Why don't you agree to do it? And I'm like, ah, but then we need OMB. It's the classic, like, you're in the wrong line. Fill out this form and triplicate. Well, I think the, the, the interesting thing, I, I used to say, like, no is the 4 o'clock answer. It's the answer you give if you want to go home at 4. Yes. Right? You say yes to something. If they had said, yes, let's do that, everyone gets, like, a bunch more work. Yes. Right? They're going to have to design it. They're going to yes. have to do it. There's risk. Someone's going to get mad. There might be, you know, it might be an MSPB thing. So, like, thanks a lot, Dan. You know, you you, you had this crazy idea of yours, and now yeah. everyone's, like, they go stuck home. writing memos. By the way, that was one of my kind of – I used to coach Little League, and – one of the things I used to tell the kids who get super frustrated if they had two strikes on them and then the ump would call a questionable third strike. I'm like, look, it's late in the day. The ump's been here a while. If there's two stri- and he wants to go home. Right. So if there's two strikes on you and the pitch is anywhere near, right, that ump is probably yeah. going to call a strike because right. they're going to go home sooner. Right. So you might as well swing. So you might as well swing. Right. Like this is just like understand the ump. Like that's open. Right. Like some of some of the challenges in government sometimes is. The, the, the good stuff you want to do is going to keep people at the game longer. Yeah, and that that's actually my advice to any incoming new person in any position is essentially you might as well swing. Yeah. Right? Because you're sitting there like, oh, I'm waiting for permission. Or I don't want to – I had one very senior person say, I just got this job. I don't want to use up my, all my political capital early. And I'm like, you – Yeah. <laughs> what are you saving it for? <laughs> yes. like the, your last day? Right? The, <laughs> Uh, it's a wasting asset. Yeah. All right. This was really cool. I think there's more to discuss. Yeah. Uh, but we're up on time. I'm glad we ended with a baseball analogy. It would have been better to end with a hockey analogy. Yeah, it's, it's late in the third period. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I can't come up You're with You're only it. up by one. You know, but yes. all it takes is one flick of the wrist. I it's hope amazing. the Caps win. Yeah. Sorry to all those Las Vegas government actually enthusiasts. But I know. I know. I know, but you know, you, you, it's just your first year. Come on. I, I know that I feel the same way. I, mean, I think it's super. You cool. have to suffer longer. I think longer. it's super cool. I mean, it's great that they're that came out of the box. But I actually think it'll be longer, longer term beneficial to the team and people's interest in the sport yes. if they actually don't win the Stanley Cup in the first year. Because where do you go from there? Yeah, they're gonna have to like win the World plus Series I'm, too. Plus, I, you know, I don't know if it's gonna happen, but the feeling I'm gonna have. When I'm looking up at that screen, and if Ovi is holding that Stanley Cup above his head, that is going to be such a an incredible feeling based on so many years and years of wanting to see that and being disappointed. Yeah. And the random Vegas player who's one year in, who's holding that Stanley Cup, because that could happen too. I don't know. I just don't think the emotion will be as strong on that side as it has to be on our side. Yeah. So I just think it's uh, it's the right answer for the Caps to win, but... They've been up 3-1 before and have blown it, so yeah, I will be nervous they, throughout. They've actually blown it more than anyone else. Uh, I so. know. <laughs> I know. You could tell. But this team may be different. All right. Go All right. Caps. All right. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, Billy. Great job, as usual. Thanks for listening to Gov Actually. We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at us at GovActuallyPod, or you can write to Danny at Danny at GovActually.com, or to me at Dan at GovActually.com. And if you haven't already, subscribe to GovActually Podcast on iTunes and write a review. That's how we get pushed up further and more people can hear about us. Thanks again.